turn your Bibles to the Lucan Gospel, we're skipping ahead. We'll go back in our series, but we're skipping ahead to the triumphal entry or to Palm Sunday of our Lord with a sermon entitled, The Stones Cry Out. Luke chapter 19, be looking at verses 29 through 46. What makes you really, really nervous? What would you go to any length to stop? People in power get really nervous when a new king enters the land. For example, King Michael, Romania's deposed monarch, returned to Bucharest in December of 1990. This was his first visit to his country, Romania, after the communist rulers forced him into exile 43 years before as part of the aftermath of World War II. When the 69-year-old king arrived, he made no comment to the reporters. He headed directly to the monastery where his family was buried. But the fact that the king returned after four decades of being away sent a tremor through Romania's political regime. King Michael didn't make it more than 60 miles outside of Bucharest before the police stopped his entourage and escorted him directly back to the airport, demanding his immediate departure. They had advised him not to come to start with. A source close to the situation said the Romanian authorities are very, very worried about the king's return. Rightly so. A crowd of demonstrators had gathered at Bucharest University Square chanting the king's name and declaring his royalty among them. What makes you really nervous? When a new king arrives and threatens to dethrone you, to take your power, to challenge who you are and how you live, maybe it's not just those in Romania who are afraid of the king's arrival. Maybe, maybe this morning we're all afraid on this Palm Sunday. Afraid because a new king means new authority. And new authority means a loss of our own circles of power. When a new king comes to town, we probably all ought to get nervous. Like King Michael's return to Romania, the Davidic king and the person of Jesus returned to Jerusalem. He returned not only as David's descendant, but he also returned as David's Lord. The arrival of Jesus was making so many nervous that day. The sights and sounds of all the miracles that Jesus had been doing in Galilee were fresh on the minds of the pilgrims on the Jerusalem journey for the Passover. Passover, you remember, is that Jewish feast which celebrated their freedom from Egyptian slavery or bondage. They observed it every year and all the Jews made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover where it ought to be celebrated in the holy city. So 
they were all there on their way. And it wasn't just a reminder of the antiquity of their freedom from Egypt, but it was also a reconstituting them again and again as a covenant people of God, a people who by his power had been set free. Now, there are not many events recorded in all four Gospels. But there's not a single evangelist who misses the events of this day. Not one. Why, only two of the Gospel writers even mention his birth. But all four mention his coming as king to Jerusalem. The event itself doesn't seem to match the Jesus we've been watching for these three years in his ministry in the Gospels. His allowing the, the crowd to shout like that and call him blessed and Hosanna and the king was a, 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 a departure from his usual aversion to acclaim. Like the crowd greeting the arrival of King Michael in Romania. Look at verse 33, verse 38. They just began to shout the accolades. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You notice a little difference here. The other gospel writers record the saying this way. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That's the cry of Matthew and Mark and John. But Luke has peace in heaven and glory in the highest it echoes the announcement at his birth when the angelic choristers announced the birth of the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. It's a significant event announced and sung about like his birth in Bethlehem. And he just, he just let them yell. Unlike every other time this time, Jesus just let them yell. Clearly, they were calling him king, and he allowed it. He even seemed to welcome it in some way, not so much in a sense of pride, but a sense that he should allow the procession of glory to finally and officially begin. The glory of God's kingdom having arrived when he came. But when a new king comes, people who are really smart start getting nervous, while others just join in the gleeful acclaim. The Pharisees were smart enough to be nervous. They realized that if there was a ruckus in Jerusalem, the Romans would step in and all would be lost. The Romans would no longer give them or tolerate their semi-autonomous existence as Jews captive in the land. It would ruin all the festival activities of Passover and beyond. Luke's account speaks of the Pharisees and the crowd who realized that the Passover pilgrims were calling clearly Jesus King. They realized what this procession meant. 
They realized that the crowd was making him out to be nothing less than the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And so, verse 39, they demand, rebuke your disciples, silence them. They need to stop this. Jesus himself usually didn't need any prompting to try to shut up the crowds about the secrecy of his identity, but this time he just let them cheer. In fact, he says, verse 40, if my disciples are silent, the stones will start shouting. Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem was so momentous that it requires a response. And if not a human one, then another. Possibly the stones is an allusion to the Gentiles who regarded as insentient stones when it came to the things of God. They were dull, they were like the rocks. And if the Jews won't shout, maybe the Gentiles, maybe the stones, the rocks will declare in fact, in chapter 23, when he dies on the cross, it is a Gentile, a stone that shouts his righteousness. This was an innocent man, 23:47. Who's in this crowd? This crowd that cheers the Lord as he enters Jerusalem. Who makes up this motley mob of Passover pilgrims? No doubt the Galileans were there. They had seen his miracles. And so they, they showed up to be sure. They'd already heard him declare on the hillside, the kingdom of God is here. And they believed it. To be sure, there were also those there from Bethany, for Bethany was still abuzz, for Jesus had just called back from the grave Lazarus and well, when you're calling the dead to awake, people get excited. And some rejoiced and joined in the parade while others ran to the Pharisees to rat on Jesus with what he had done in Bethany. Immediately, having called Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees, they convene a council and they wisely say, if we just let him keep going, then everyone will call him Messiah. The Romans will come in. We will have a war. We will have a ruckus. And so they are waiting and watching for the moment to seize Jesus and stop this parade of the Passover. They were both watching him this man who even had power over death itself, who had come to the Passover, they wondered, the, the pilgrims wondered, will he show up from Galilee? Will he make the trip down for the Passover this year? The pilgrims were watching and wondering what other miracles he might do for them. They loved the show. The Pharisees were looking for the single misstep that allowed them to seize him. Silences popularity. There were others there in the parade too. The blind were there, not just those from Galilee and Bethany, but the blind were there. Why, he's just healed a man at Jericho. He was blind, but now he can see. And once the word gets out, all the blind were coming. They were hoping that he would give them sight as he had done for others. 
And the lame were there. They were some even being carried because the word was out that he could cause the lame to leap. And this was their shot. Surely he would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. For the lame were there and the children were there joining in the parade. They were all there watching and waiting. Real disciples and curiosity seekers and would-be, should-be followers of Jesus. See him now. Jesus riding into the city on the young donkey, borrowed a coat, placed on the beast of burdens back as a saddle. He rides in as a curious fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah, surrounded by his disciples, might be disciples, and those who just wanted to see the show. And we'll never know who did it first. But someone takes off his cloak and throws it on the ground. And then another takes off his cloak and throws it on the ground as if they are making a royal carpet for the new king to arrive. And those who didn't have cloaks to spare went and began to cut the date palm branches. We saw them just a few weeks ago, those of us who went to Israel, there by the road, the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, just orchards of them. In fact, there were even wild donkey beneath looking for a date that might fall and give a sweet treat. They began cut those palm branches and throwing them down and making a royal carpet for him to arrive. There's a spirit of jubilation that catches on and the crowd begins to wave the branches as our children did. It was as if the trees themselves were clapping their hands in the words of the psalmist that the Messiah is here and the world, the cosmos creation is all astir. But the very Christ who had created them was in their midst. But the hearts of those who had grown cold with self-ambition and the grasp of power continued to object. Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes in this broken world with the dark powers in control, things are good enough for some of us that we really don't welcome a lot of radical changes that might upset Rome. Do we? We ourselves in this story, unfortunately, might some of us identify with the Pharisees. We're not really wanting a new authority in our life or in our world. A new king is going to challenge our will and our way and demand his will and his way. A, little, a king is going to threaten our little thrones of our existence and our spheres, our spheres of power. Jerusalem's hardened heart is epitomized by its failure to welcome its new king. There are no city officials who come for this Galilean rabbi. He's not fated by the leading citizens nor escorted back to the city as if he's really the Davidic king. And the encounter with the only authority who's there, the Pharisees, is a rejection. There's a non-appearance of the high priest, the other officials. The citizens of Jerusalem just see it as an affront. But the rejection is made clear by the fact that Luke himself and his gospel has gone to great lengths to let us know that Jesus is, he is the king. And although he is their king, he is not received as one by his people. 
The Romans watched the parade at a distance. They're probably amused by the whole affair. Their kings ride stallions of war. This would-be king on the back of a baby donkey seemed an oddity at best. These ragtag group of followers from Galilee and Bethany, the lame, the blind, the children, the Galileans, the peasants. What kind of mob is this? And only Luke mentions it, but don't miss it. Look at verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. Look at the eyes of the king as he comes into his kingdom. He gets a glance of Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps over the destruction that awaits the very city that rejects him, rejects him as king. Well, we all know the story, and it won't take long until Hosanna, Hosanna is transformed into crucify him, crucify him. The crowd is fickle. They reject him when he proves to be ultimately a disappointment. When he doesn't end up overthrowing Rome, but rather he calls all men, both Jews and the stones, the Gentiles, to quietly live out the kingdom of God in their lives in such a way as to subversively transform all the relationships they have in this world based upon another world where he is king. Are you, are you threatened by the arrival of the king today? You ought to be. Are you afraid of this new King Jesus who parades into our lives at this time of year, this passion time? This King who allows creation itself to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Barbara Brown Taylor, preacher, says she remembers being at a retreat once where the leader asked the participants to think of someone who represented Christ in their lives. Think of someone who represents Christ in your life. That was the question at the retreat. When it came time to go around the group and deliver your answer of who it was that represented Christ in your life, one woman stood up at her turn and said, I had to think long and hard. That was a really hard question. I kept asking and thinking, who is it that told me the truth about myself so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it? That's what Christ does. He speaks the truth, the painful truth, because he is the truth. According to John, Jesus died because he told the truth to everyone he met. He was the perfect mirror in which people saw themselves in God's own light. And what happened then still happens today in the presence of his integrity, our own pretense is exposed. In the presence of his constancy, our own cowardice is brought to light. In the presence of his fierce love for God, her own hardness of heart is revealed to us. 
You take Christ out of this room and I only have to compare myself to you and I, I have a better chance. You take Christ out of the room and you only have to compare yourself to me and you've got a good chance, but you leave him here and you see who we really are. In his presence, people either fall down and worship him or do everything they can to extinguish is light. When the crowd themselves realized they could not control the Christ, but rather he demanded control of them, they began to shout, crucify him, crucify him. The pilgrims are asking, is this rabbi who tells the stories about the kingdom of God, who heals the sick and casts out the demons of hell, is he really the one? Is he the son of God? Now, Jesus normally walked everywhere that he went. In fact, he doesn't get on the back of the baby donkey until he's really approaching the city there on the Mount of Olives, he descends through the Kidron Valley to the east side of the holy city to enter therein. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, what he wrote in 1 Kings. We read these words in Zechariah 9, 9, 2. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, for your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Throughout scripture, it is horses that are associated with war. The horse's image is a great might and connected with the vain hope of military victory. But the cult in Zechariah's context is connected to peace and humility. And this particular cult had never been ridden before, not once. It's a suitable and sacred animal for the purpose worthy to be ridden by the new king. Was he the real king of the cosmos? This man who oddly enters Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley to the eastern side of the city on the back of a baby donkey. This king who has nothing but a ragtag band of followers throwing down their coats and waving the date palm branches. The question is a personal one for you today. For again this year, he rides into our midst. And we ourselves have to join the pilgrims of that parade and each one of us must answer for ourselves, himself or herself. Is he my king? Is this the creator of the cosmos? Is this the one that I've longed for to worship? It's not a detached doctrine this morning. It is a personal question from the text to you. He's coming in. What part of the crowd will you be? Will you take off your cloak and throw down your palm branches and wave and shout so the stones can stay silent? Or 
Will you get nervous like the Pharisees, nervous that he's challenging your power and your influence and your spheres and your little throne will have to be unoccupied so he can sit upon it? If you say, no, he's not the king, crucify him. You're not willing to admit the changes he wants to bring into your life then you this morning are like the Pharisees making him out to be a deceiver and a charlatan and you're joining those who once disappointed with what he had to offer quickly pushed him aside, sent him to the cross and wanted to annihilate him. Maybe you're in that crowd today. But if you say yes, Hosanna. If you declare him king, not only of the cosmos, but of your own heart, then you have committed yourself to a journey, a journey of exploration into God through learning about this person of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, and his awaited next week glorious resurrection. His entry brings something with it, a sense of triumph, but not the kind of triumph that would impress Rome. Not even the kind that would impress the crowds of Jerusalem for very long because he's a different kind of king. He's the kind of king who washes the feet of his followers, getting the mud out from between their toes. He's the kind of king who says, I'm a good shepherd and lays down his life for his sheep. He's the kind of king who finds power in being a servant, who finds life in dying, the king who finds his victory in suffering. Jesus enters the city to die and will be enthroned as king on a cross, which will bring even greater good to the people. And the greatest, mightiest work, the resurrection, awaits. The hardest thing about this king is he asks us to be as he is. If you call me teacher and Lord, and if I can wash your feet, then you're to be busy carrying and washing each other's feet. He asks us to be baptized with him. He doesn't just die for us. He dies with us. We are to die with him and to rise with him. And his death is our death and his resurrection next, next week is our resurrection. So we rise with him. Jesus didn't deny our inner sense of need of competition. He said, you want to be great, then be the youngest and be the one who serves in humility. Well, if that's all he has to offer, some said then and some say now, just send him to the cross. Wait. I hear the clacking of the donkey's hooves on the Roman stones now. The king is here. You can't stop him. You will not slow his arrival. If you put him on a cross, that's where God wants him to be anyway. And he will rise in three days. Let us pray. Oh God, 
the king is here. And we must decide what portion of the pilgrims will be. Will we, with they, declare, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Or will we stand on the sides and whisper with the religious authorities, we've got to put a stop to this? We'll be the, we'll be the net losers of this transaction. Oh God, maybe there's someone here in this room or someone watching by live stream or television this morning, you would say to her, to him, the king is here. It is your year to declare he is my Lord. I will follow him. Maybe there are others, it is their day to declare themselves a follower of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.